0: Camel boots on my
1: American Roots Outdoors, Hi buddy, I'm the Redbone Mike Grace. Wayne Lock is joining me in the studio. We have Alex Rutledge with us via the telephone. Alex, how in the world are you? I'm
2: uh, doing good, Red Bone Wayne. I'm in San Antonio, Texas, down here doing some of the other uh, work that I do other than the other five, six jobs that I try to do. And <laughs> it's beautiful down here. It's actually 70 degrees yesterday and 70 degrees today.
1: Oh, wow. Well, we're near 60, so, you know, you're not a whole lot better off than we are, but boy, next week we're going to pay for it.
2: You know what the crazy thing is? It's the right in the middle of their rifle season right here in Texas. We're staying right outside of uh, San Antonio, right within the city limits here of San Antonio. and We actually drive about, commute about uh, 40 miles to work every morning, every evening, I should say. And oh, wow. so we get back every morning uh, around... Eight thirty, nine o'clock. So, we uh, work at nights doing the safety work and work for visa on these shutdown plants. But uh, talking and seeing people about the rut here in Texas, and they said it's just happening. And when we're going to work, we see all these deer standing at the edge of the fields and actually within the uh, inside of the place that we work at the concrete plants called Martin Marietta, and there's deer everywhere down here.
1: Oh, wow. Well, you should have took a rifle.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So I'm so tired, I don't even feel like it,
0: guys. (laughs) So they're running about two weeks behind on their rut than we were?
2: Yes, yes. This is their first main rut right now. Yeah. So the two weeks behind and uh, definitely, definitely... Uh, warmer weather than what we have.
1: Well, you know, that would make sense, and, and I just showed Wayne a photo on Facebook a while ago. Tyler Jordan killed a huge Oklahoma buck. It would make sense that if the rut's going on now in Texas, it's going on in Oklahoma as well.
2: You know, you're right. And The the other rut is actually going to kick in again. If you We've talked about it several times, mm-hmm. Redbone, that we have noticed the rut would happen different times. What happens is this new moon coming in, is what which helps trigger that, you know?
1: Yeah, so, and, I, and I guess what the week after next, I guess around the 16th, would that be uh, that'd be 30 days from the other start?
2: Yeah, so they could actually be another trickle of the rut. So <laughs> if you go by the moon and the weather, etc., the only difference is the ruts happening at the same time, but maybe a, two weeks later, you know what I mean, as the rut progresses.
1: Yeah, and those does, that, yeah, and those does that didn't breed the first go around, they'll come back in. Um, you know, mid-December, and, and the bucks will be chasing again.
0: Yeah, but... exactly. Yeah, they exactly. generally run about uh, twenty-three to twenty-seven days after their last cycle. They come back in again.
2: Hmm. So yeah, if... a lot, a lot of people didn't know that. I did not know that. So there's a lot to learn. You know, deer are a lot like dogs. Everybody.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And once a female dog comes into heat, and if that female dogs run other dogs she stimulates these other dogs to possibly come into to heat as well.
1: And, you know, Alex, even, even into January and February, because, you know, there are some places where there's a large concentration of does, they may not all get bred through the first two cycles. They'll come in again.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have seen does, everybody, in my area that I live in Birch Tree. I've seen some does with just fawn, one farm, but I've seen some does with two fawns and I've seen one doe with triplets. Mm. So when you see a lot of ponds with your does in your area, it's a sign, according to the studies biologists have done. And even old timers say it is that if you see those, a lot of ponds you have a healthy deer herd. So that's the sign. that I've seen. Yeah.
1: All right. So Alex, uh, you know, as we continue to look at the numbers and we just got a couple of minutes here, cause we got a really, really cool guest to be joining us on the show today. Uh, but, uh, Uh, You know, as you continue to study the numbers, 178,000, just a few deer over that, is where we ended up the rifle season in Missouri, which was about 22,000 below where we were uh, just a year. Actually, it was 24,000 below where we were a year ago in Missouri. Uh, A lot of factors there. You know, the acorns can be a factor and and this, that, and the other. But I think any way you slice it up, uh, either the number of hunters— has dropped drastically or the number of deer has dropped by a pretty good number what do you think
2: well i think uh, uh what a great point to touch on uh i know that our deer numbers are not down in shannon county uh when it comes to actual visual
3: mm-hmm. uh
2: we see a lot of deer and i and according to conversations i've had we see people just comment on the amount of deer that they've seen in all different areas of shannon county so I really think the, some of the problem is, is that we had a massive acre crop and a lot of it just stayed in the woods. But I also think that we are losing hunters. I hate to say it, It's just my opinion. I've talked to several people said, oh, I didn't have time to hunt this year. I was busy working.
0: Well, and another yeah, all, thing that uh, – was uh, pardon the interruption there, but I was going say another thing that played uh account this year that has not – in past years is the fact that the hunting season this year was later – than it has been in a long time, which actually put them right into the rut that normally you guys have not had to uh, deal with.
1: Yeah, and another thing, and I think somebody made this point a couple of weeks ago that you know we haven't considered a whole lot, Alex, and that was the flooding along the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers up north that just moved deer out of there. I mean, there's some still, still some parts of the state of Missouri that are underwater. So obviously where you had croplands and really good deer hunting up north, there aren't any deer right there. Anymore. And it'll take a couple of years for those deer to move back in.
2: You know, I would agree with that also. And If you're looking at the total count from Missouri, and that was our topic, mm-hmm. our focus, uh, that, that can affect also, yes. But I do believe our, our hunters' numbers are going down. We've got to do a better job of uh, teaching and getting kids introduced. Everybody, we're going to go to a break right now. Don't everybody go away! You're listening to American Roots Outdoors right here, right now.
1: Hey everybody, this is Michael Water with Bone Collector, and you're listening to
2: my buddy Alex Rutledge on American Roots Outdoors. Man, don't miss an episode.
0: Wishing on some love I've been on a big for a while, in the back of
2: Welcome back to American Roots Outdoors. I'm calling in via phone from San Antonio, Texas, and. Uh, We've got a great show lined up, as we said earlier today. We've got a mystery guest, and this gentleman is calling in from up north. And this gentleman that's on the line with us right now is one of my mentors that taught me, taught me how to decoy whitetails. And if you've ever watched primetime bucks, North American whitetails, and you do a lot of reading in a lot of the major hunting magazines, you'll know this guy. Welcome to the show, Mr. Greg Miller. How are you doing, buddy? Not
0: too bad, Alex. How are you? How's everybody? Oh, we're doing good up here.
1: Yeah, doing great in southern Missouri. We got uh, warm weather, about 12 degrees above normal, so we like it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what is the weather doing up north, Greg? Well,
3: actually, we uh, we just got hit by a major winter storm. It's, our winter is off to a little bit of a more early start than normal, but um, I spent I spent the morning today at uh, getting an MRI. In fact, because I I uh, was trying to switch my lawn tractor over from the mower deck to the snowblower attachment, and apparently I should have had some help. I uh, I had another uh, late season bull hunt in North Dakota planned here, probably probably later in the month. Uh, the worse it gets, the better the hunting will get, you know, because the deer will become congregated. Anyway, that might be up in the air now because I. Uh, I didn't break my right arm, forearm, but I I uh, may have snapped a tendon or two, and uh, at the very least tore some some muscles. So,
1: okay, that was from. When, I mean, how, how exactly did the accident? We I mean, don't want to get too far in this, but how did the accident happen? So, maybe we can warn somebody not to do what you did. <laughs>
3: I guess uh, you know, with this this uh, it's a fairly heavy uh, snowblower attachment that goes on my tractor, and and mm-hmm. uh, it's just a lawn tractor. But anyway, I was getting it kind of out from behind some stuff and long story short, I should have had some help. It's, it's, uh, oxy and heavy, and it started to kind of fall. And I just reached out with my right hand and grabbed the edge of the blower deck. And, and, uh, it was a mistake. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was heavier than I could hang on to. And oh, as it's going down, instead of just letting go of it, I hang, hung on and I, I felt something snap in my right forearm. So I knew instantly mm-hmm. it, with that and, uh, the mm-hmm. pain, uh, I knew something was definitely wrong. And well, it, that
0: is your instinct to grab onto something, and your other instinct is not to let go. So, <laughs> Oh, gosh, yes.
1: Yep. And I, and I guess the first thing that you would think, being who you are and what you do, first first thing you're thinking is not go to the hospital. First thing you're thinking is, oh, no, how am I going to pull my bow? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: this was one of those. Um, it, My first reaction was, my gosh, I broke my arm. And then, well, I don't think. I don't think it's broke, but that was almost on the heels of that is, oh, man, is my boat season over for the year? <laughs> I want to get yeah. one more trip yet to North <laughs> Dakota. You know? So oh, that was hot on the heels yeah. of, did I break my arm? Mm. Yeah. Will I be able to pull my boat?
2: So so anyway, you may have to go to a crossbow, Greg, right now. I mean, uh, I know that that's going to be our view to do, and it's okay to be a crossbow hunter, but... Uh, as long as you can hunt, I know you'd love to
3: hunt, but uh, you have to go with a crossbow. What, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I mean, uh, uh, I, I've never shot a deer with a crossbow. Lord knows I don't have anything left to prove with a vertical bow. After right. you know, 50-some years of, of being a vertical bow user, starting out with a long bow and then eventually uh, you know, a compound. Um, if, if it means extending my season and Being able to do this hunt, unfortunately, I just checked the regulations for North Dakota. And it has to be special permit only, or you can use crossbows during the firearm season or by special permit. So I may qualify for that. I don't know. But my hope is I'll be going on this hunt maybe later in the month. uh, And by then, I'll be able to draw my bow. We'll see. We'll just have to keep an eye on it.
0: Well, I do feel your pain pain. because I broke my leg. In '97, uh, and I had to go from a vertical to a crossbow. Only did it one year. It's the only year I ever hunted with a crossbow. But I feel your pain on this.
3: Well, and and you know, the, the point being here with me is it, it's something I've never experienced. Um, I shot some some javelina with crossbow last year in Texas, and uh, was very impressed with the accuracy and the range. But would I like to do it? Yes, I would. It's just like when I shot my first muzzleloader deer. I thought, boy, this is really cool. This is kind of like a step back, um, and something different. And that's what this would be with the crossbow. Um, and if it's getting more, you know, the the introduction of crossbows into the sport, if it's getting more hunter numbers out there and, uh, making it a viable option for some people who otherwise wouldn't be buying hunting licenses, I'm all for it.
0: Well, and after following you for the last 20 years, we know you're good and you're up for challenges. So.
3: Yeah. Um, well, and it's just kind of been my, I mean, I started out hunting one of the most challenging deer hunting areas in in the country, in the wilderness areas of northern Wisconsin when I was 12 years old, and it became instantly hooked on that. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's like I'm always looking for another challenge, uh, albeit maybe some simpler challenges than I've taken on in the past.
0: <laughs> um, age
3: kind of does that to you.
1: And uh, Greg, let me ask you this, because uh, you know we we've had this progression in in the hunting business, and you've been around for all of it. That when when the the compound bows came out, and the longbow shooters said, oh, "I'm not shooting one of those things; that's cheating." And then as as the compound bows became the normalcy, now we come along with the crossbows, and now as more and more states accept the crossbows as an archery sport, and Missouri and Arkansas is that way; you can hunt archery season with a crossbow. And then you know they are the traditional you know, crossbow hunters to say, oh, I'm not going to those things, that's cheating. Uh, but eventually the crossbow will become, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for here, will, will become the normalcy or the norm uh, for the archery hunters. Do you see that kind of thing? Are we kind of getting over that now with the crossbows?
3: Oh, I think they've become, they've become, uh, people have become a little more tolerant of it, and, and it's mm-hmm. it's opened the doors for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get out there and get after it. Right along those same lines, I have to say that uh, we we better keep a close eye on harvest statistics, though, because the the kills, the the archery kills and longbows, compound bows, crossbows are all lumped into this archery category. Mm -hmm. And the the kills have definitely gone up uh, in recent years in some states. Um, since the legalization of crossbows, and I, I think that we need to keep an eye on that, mm-hmm. but you know, and then manage accordingly. but I mean, nothing stays the same. I can take you back to when I was an avid bow hunter through high school, and then I went into the military right after my senior year of high school, and I was gone for the better part of four years. When I came home, I was digging out my uh, old recurve, Bear Kodiak Magnum recurve. Wow. And shooting in the backyard at some straw bales and one of my buddies shows up and he's got this contraption bow that's got <laughs> pulleys and wheels and I'm like, What on earth is that? <laughs> and he's showing it to me and I said, Well, I'll never shoot one of those. That thing's you know, it's just it's, it's too mechanical. Yeah. And within a week, after watching him shoot circles around me and the performance of it. I was shooting one
1: of those compound boards. <laughs> well, that's kind of the point that I was making a while ago is, is those things come along and, and the traditionalists go, no, 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 not me. But then as the performance proves itself and the, the enhanced and the increased performance, then it kind of becomes the norm. Everybody wants to get in on it. All right, guys, we need to take a break. We're speaking with Greg Miller and I know Alex is along with us. Uh, Wayne Locke is here on the Redbone Mike Grace. We'll be back with more American Roots Outdoors in just a moment. Take it to a field,
2: a crowd. Welcome back to American Roots, and uh, you're just now joining us. We've got Greg Miller, one of the mentors of my hunting times uh, growing up as a younger man. And Greg Miller taught me so much about decoy and using mock scrapes and uh, a lot about bow hunting. I was We was on the same team together with Hunter Specialties back in the day, and the, the number one DVD sewing series, Primetime Bucks, Greg was taught. About your roots and uh, your roots, you're, you're born here in America. You're from um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. I'm sorry, sorry, mm-hmm. Wisconsin. Let, let's talk about Greg Miller. Where you was born and how you was raised, your parents, and how you got into hunting. Let's start
3: right there. Well, I'm a product. My hunting career is a product of. Uh, it's a generational thing within our family, and and uh, my dad. And, uh, 11 of his family members and, um, friends each chipped in a hundred dollars a piece to buy a cabin and, and 40 acres of hunting property in Northern Wisconsin back in 1949. Wow. Um, yeah. And it was the hunting cabin, the hunting shack, uh, you know, whatever it was called. Nobody took offense, with if it was called the hunting shack, um, but I got my start in the big woods of northern Wisconsin, and well, you could you could easily ex- expect to see a bear or a wolf or any you know coyotes, anything like that. As as you did here, um, it was truly big woods. It's where if you stepped off a road, um, you better know where you're going because it's going to be quite a distance to the next road. And I fell in love with it. And so I got my my roots began in the in the North Woods of Wisconsin. I'm talking way up in the northern, very north, most northwestern part of the state, um, with a great group of deer hunters who were extremely serious about about deer hunting. Um, so I was blessed in, in that regard. Let me ask you this, uh, Greg, and uh,
2: you, you learned to deer hunt through your family, your roots, and uh, when you say the big woods up in uh... Up north, you know, we have big woods right here in the Midwest and southern Missouri. We have over two millions of acres of Mark Twain National Forest. So some of our listeners, they listen from all over the world right now to our podcast show and our radio show. Uh, what kind of tips you got for these guys that hunt big woods, big timber? And You know, right now we're still the triple the rut going on in the Midwest and southern Missouri, northern Arkansas. Uh, what is your tips for these guys that's big timber?
3: Well, um, after you know, th- these are lessons that were learned the hard way, of course. Don't bite off more than you can chew initially, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you got to realize back when I when I started doing it, there were no scouting cameras, there were no topo maps, there were there was no Google Earth, there was none of that. It was all boot leather and time, and yep. I think that we became very, very good hunters um, because we worked very, very hard. We, we, we laid down a lot of boot leather, spent a lot of time in the woods. And it's the the thing about big woods is it's, it's almost as much or more a matter of eliminating bad areas as it is finding good areas. Because of all that stuff that's out there on those thousands or hundreds of thousands of acres, or even hundreds of acres, there's only so much of it that deer use in almost every instance. And that includes the... Shawnee National Forest in southern Illinois, or what you're talking about, Alex, and what I'm talking about, and uh, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area in northern Minnesota, which is vastly, I mean, that's a vast tract of real estate. And it's all the same. It's a matter of elimination and spending time. And even now with Scouting Canvas um, and Google Earth and everything, it's, it's, it's not something you can learn in a matter of a few days or even a few weeks, maybe even a few months. It might take years.
1: Yeah, Greg, is there something that you can look at if someone is going to start hunting the big woods? I mean, is there a, a kind of a standard plan? And I mean, can you can you give us just an overview of what you would consider, well, I'm not even going to go there because that looks like it is going to be one of the bad areas, or I'm going here because it looks like it's going to be a good area. I mean, are, are there some guidelines to follow?
3: Well, I'll tell you what, absolutely. That's a very good question, um, and, and I do get asked a lot. That in seminars or just talking to other hunters, is um, it, it became a matter of, of doing almost as much off-season stuff as it did, actually more. Um, early winter, we'd just go up and stay up north at our cabin, and we'd walk pretty much daylight daylight till dark, and and we're looking for existing buck sign and most importantly, like antler rubs. You know, bucks make rubs in areas they feel comfortable using. Period, and so we could eliminate a lot, eliminate a lot of bad country and tracks, of course, and scrapes. And but in December we almost always got a snow cover, but um, it was a lot of walking, a lot of looking for buck sign. You know, visual buck sign. There's nothing more visible or visual than, a, than an antler rub, and that carries over into the spring, because even in spring the rubs look like they've been like a, in a state of suspended animation, where they they're still shiny. You can still see them good. And then we'd start going from there and following lines of rubs to establish travel routes, find bedding areas. Because in the spring, we didn't care if we bumped a deer or if we stepped in the wrong place because it's going to be months before the season opens again. Yeah. So, in some instances, we were even purposely walking to try and jump bucks just to see exactly where they were laying. A um, lot, 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 of, lot of time and effort is what it takes. Even today, like I said, with the, with the modern technology. Sconing cameras don't always show you everything.
2: You're, you're right. And uh, I've noticed on my farm in the Midwest and places that I hunt, uh, there's deer on my property and places I hunt that I've never captured one picture that I visually see. Yeah. So Amen. is because you have truck coming I mean, what a great point to stress to the listeners is that you know just because you got trucking doesn't mean you're going to capture every deer that's on your property. Great stuff and, and, and a great response to the question. Let's go back to your roots real quick. Then we're going to jump back and forth. Uh, your influences was your your your, your family. Yep. But what was your first big move? And before we talk about that first big move, what kind of work did, did Greg Miller do as a common individual? Did you, construction, which I know you did, let's talk about that. What kind of jobs have you done in your life?
3: Well, I spent, uh, when I got out of the military, um, I went to school for a while, uh, journalism school, uh, under the GI Bill. And my brother, Mike, had been working construction as a heavy equipment operator for a number of years. And he's, he's like, I can't, can't it? Figure out why you want to spend money on school and do that. And he said, "I can get you a job with us right now." For back then, it was like ten or twelve bucks an hour. I'm talking a long time ago. And I'm like, really, and he said, "Yeah." So I did uh, underground sewer and water for a while. I think three or four years, and then um, I didn't like going down the trenches so much anymore. And I like after four years of that, I uh, became a concrete worker, a union concrete worker, and did that for almost twenty. Years. Um, until I sustained pretty serious injury and uh, that's when I went full-time into the outdoor industry at that point Wow what do you think of that Lang Locke?
0: oh uh, I tell you that's that's something when we all know that everybody started somewhere like everybody is done and they just happen to get that break where they uh, they get to branch off into the outdoor industry
3: yeah and I'm
1: interested in what yeah, that I, break.
3: Yeah. luckily I had I had become a published author by then I uh, had Written some stuff for North American Whitetail Magazine as well as Outdoor Life. And that's what I was doing in my downtime. We can't do concrete work like we were doing. It's a lot of road work uh, when the snow is on the ground. So I was laid off for five months out of the year. And I started doing some magazine work. And uh, so I already had my foot in the door when I got, got hurt. But it's almost like somebody was pointing me in that direction. The injury was serious, but it also was a life changer in a good way. Right, the good Lord was giving you direction
2: you didn't even realize it great right. Right, that'd be a good Boy, place Redbone.
1: yeah well well before we continue here we uh, we've come time for another break so uh let's hold that thought right there and we'll find out exactly how Greg Miller got into the outdoor industry from concrete work to writing and where he got on TV we'll do that in just a moment you're listening to American roots outdoors radio with Alex Rutledge we'll be back here
0: after year, Welcome back to American Roots Outdoors with Alex Rutledge. This is Wayne Locke in the studio with Mike Crace. And on the phone, we have Alex in Texas and our special guest, Greg Miller. Greg, you had uh, talked about uh, being in the service. Let's let's touch base on that real quick. Uh, where were you at and what were you doing?
3: In the Air Force? Yeah. I uh, actually started out, I was uh, schooled in uh, the intelligence division, and uh, I spent almost eight months, uh, just doing schooling while and in the meantime, they're doing a top secret security clearance check on me. So they the FBI and other people are knocking on doors around my hometown and talking to people that knew me, some relatives, some people, some past employers and spent my first 15 months after I got out of tech school in the military in Anchorage, Alaska. And then I got, uh, orders for denying South Vietnam. I spent a little time over in Southeast Asia. I think I had maybe, uh, I don't know, close to 80 or 85 airborne combat missions. We were advanced intelligence. We'd go in and slow-moving, low-flying air- aircraft and pinpoint uh, bad guys, target locations, and then we would turn that information over immediately to the people that could take care of those things. Um, in the end, our squadron, 6994, uh, ended up coordinating more than 90% of all the B-52 strikes that were conducted in Southeast Asia, and that's South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Wow, wow! What do you think of that, Redmond? Uh, I think wow. that's
1: pretty amazing, and, and uh, I would just like to say thank you, sir, for your service.
3: Oh, my pleasure. It was it, it was a life changer. Quite honestly, you don't you don't look at things the same much anymore. You know, mm-hmm. uh, not in a bad way. I'm not. I'm not saying that. Yeah. It just it changes your perspective. I think it makes you a little better balanced. I would agree. You know, again, thank you for serving our country. And, Greg,
2: I've known you many years. And, again, you're one of the men that I've looked up to and I've learned some of my hunting tactics on decoy. And let's talk about uh, that here in just a minute. But, again, thank you so much. But I have a question to you about the military side and what you did. Was you on the ground a lot, even though you were with the Air Force, when you found these people or these areas or – uh, was you on the ground or were you flying choppers?
3: What were you doing to turn no, these people? No, in, as, I, okay. as I said, we were flying in low-altitude, low low-moving low okay. planes. Actually, they were Goonie the EC-47 Goonie um that were designed and built in the, oh, my gosh, the 1930s. <laughs> wow. These things were the most reliable airplanes I think the United States has ever come up with. Uh, they were still using them a lot. I, I still see them occasionally as cargo planes, DC-3s, they call them. We call them EC-47s, EC standing for electronic aircraft, but um, very reliable, but very slow and zero oxygen, so we couldn't go above 10,000 feet. So we were within range of a lot of small arms and SA-7s, and we had to be very careful.
1: Did you ever take on fire? Uh, Yeah. That's got to be one of the scariest things in the world.
3: It's it's an eye-opener, I will tell you that. Did uh, you get hit? Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a sphincter tightener
1: is what we <laughs> called it. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that right there. <laughs> Pinching a hole in the seat, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I could imagine. Mm-hmm. I could imagine. Wow. All right, so you get down with the military, Greg, and, and you're doing some writing and, and some of those things and where, I mean, what would you consider the big break for Greg Miller to get and become the icon in the outdoors that he is?
3: That's a good, that's a very good question. And, 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 you know, some people know this and some don't, but I, when I was doing the, as I said, you know, doing the concrete work, I was laid off in the winter and I, I was reading some magazines and reading some stuff that, and this is in no way meant to shame anybody else, but I thought, gosh, there's just nothing about what we're finding, what we're seeing, <laughs> what the gear here. Hmm. So, um, I put together an article on, I I did the very first article ever published exclusively dealing with rubs and rub lines to kill big deer because we'd been doing it for throughout the eighties and uh, early eighties, mid eighties. So I put it together an article and I had my wife read it and I had her reread it and I reread it and rewrote it. And uh, I thought, what the heck, I'm just going to send this in to North American whitetail magazine. And a couple months later later, Gordon Whittington, God bless him, sends me a letter. Dear Greg, we really enjoyed your article. Um, A lot of good practical information, and it's going to run in the future issue of North American Whitetail. Wow. And I was ecstatic. I didn't even finish reading the letter. (laughs) And I was showing the letter to my wife, and she said, oh, my gosh, they're going to pay you, too. And I'm like, what? (laughs) 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 She said, said, they're going to pay you. (laughs) <laughs> I think it was $350, if I remember right. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I just sent it in hoping to get published. I didn't know they I was going to get paid. Wow. So, so I was off. And, and he, Gordon said something very interesting. At the end of the letter, he said, oh, by the way, if you're currently working on anything else along these lines, you know, we'd truly really like to have a look at it. And that's all the ins- inspiration I needed, you know, mm-hmm. coming from him. Mm.
1: Wow. You know, again, What, what a
3: great story, Wayne uh, Redbone.
2: And uh, look at him. Here he is today. He's still on national TV, North American whitetail, and still nationally riding. One of the strongest whitetail riders in the outdoor industry. And, Greg, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? I am 67 and a half years old. 67 and a half years old. Wow. wow. You know, it's been quite a while since I've seen you. Probably three, four years at ATA, I think. But uh, your son now is hunting, and uh, you you shared all your knowledge with him. And he's a big rub line connector and scrape connector. And let, let's talk about that real, real quick. Uh, give us some quick tips to the listeners how they can take the, the the scrapes, the rubs, and all the other sign, and how you use the same perspective as stamp pots is looking down the earth and you connect the dots,
3: you put the puzzle together. Let's talk about that. What we've discovered. First, let me talk about my son a little bit. He's, he's yes, he's actually, he, he really um, doesn't care if he's in front of the camera yeah. much, if at all. He's, he's gotten into the production end of it. God bless him because yeah. he's one, he'd be a wasted talent if I didn't let him do what he does best. And that's produce film, edit. and, turn out a finished product that can still make this old man look pretty darn good. <laughs> but the getting back to the rub line thing. Um, what, what we noticed is, is, you know, the rub lines connected bedding and feeding areas, period. It was like the problem was which feeding area they're using on any given day. There's not just one rub line these bucks would use dependent on wind direction, depending on, with eating acorns, but the acorns hadn't dropped yet, so they're using something else. Is it farmland? Is it big woods? Farmland, it's alfalfa, soybeans, corn. But those, the connect the dots thing, which is the, the rubs themselves, almost always were laid out in a line between bedding and feeding areas. Mm. I mean, there's random rubs, like sometimes you'll find oh. these giant rubs in, in the middle of a spot where you go, why on earth did this deer rub here? Was probably made during the rut, you know, when he was just on that rod. Yeah. Hmm. So you know, in the big woods, it became a matter of figuring out what the deer were eating because there were no obvious food sources. We were almost too far north. We were north of the, the oak line, I call it, where we could ever you'd really rely on getting a an adequate acorn crop, if any. So then you start turning your attention to certain browse items, grasses things like that. It was a lot of hard work, a lot, a lot of time spent. We would figure that out. All
1: right, but, the mm-hmm. data, but the data doesn't lie, does it, Greg? When you, when you get that data no, all put together, not. it does not lie.
3: No, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. It, it's there in front of you. The problem that, that we had initially, and then I see people making to this day, is how do you interpret what you're seeing? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the big key. That's some of the things that I learned with you uh, uh, back in the
2: day reading your books, and I have several of your books and listeners. You can still order some of Greg's books and read some of his stuff. You can follow him on his website, Facebook, uh, other avenues, is, you know, why does a deer rub? Why does a deer scrape? Why did that deer uh, actually take a dump over there? Seriously, this is deep stuff. But listeners, you're listening to a man that is a huge analyzer. And most of the guests that we have on our show, they're successful because they just don't wing things. They they, they take a special focus upon what they're doing. And they pay attention to every little thing. Uh, the size of the tree a rub is rubbed on. Uh, the, the size of the rub, they actually become, I'll never forget, I believe he was one of them that said this, and I used to use this analogy also every deer hunt I go on I become a investigator. I'm here to solve the crime I'm here to solve the scene so you taught me how to take a more serious perspective of looking at things uh, thank you for teaching everybody this kind of thing
3: Greg well my pleasure it's it's um what I what I discovered and it's a good point you made about it's one thing to find a sign. It's another thing to to analyze that sign correctly, and I had a an offshoot of my business where I did I did uh, well. I'd, I'd meet with people. It was a it was a consulting business where um, I was doing this probably way back in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, where uh, I'd advertise at my seminars in different places at my booth at hunting shows that if you if you were in need of somebody to come and walk your property with you for a fee, I would do it. And I would try and help you figure out. Your to your hunting property. And that became hugely um, successful. In fact, it got so successful that I was away from home too much. I mean, it got to the point where um, after the show season, I was spending weeks and months on the road again doing this. But the thing that it taught me is people, each individual person looks at things differently and those people analyze things differently. Mm-hmm. And I was taking for granted a lot of the skills that I had and I learned that through spending time with people who weren't as fortunate as me in having the amount of time to spend out there that I had early in my career with being laid off all, all winter. Um, so it taught me that um, that was a very important part of, of who I was, was my analytical skills.
1: Yeah, Alex, we could go on and on and on with, with Greg because everything he's talked about has been so interesting today, but we have come to the end of our time.
2: Yeah, we, we have everybody. You know, it, we just want to say this. And Wayne, I know you're you're going to inject this. The knowledge that you share with all of our listeners, uh, people's listening to this as far as Australia, Alaska, uh, Netherlands, everywhere is listening to our podcast and radio show. Uh, that's the reason guys like Greg Miller, Stan Potts, Drew uh, Brothers, Grant Woods, Larry Watson, Michael Wardell. Uh, All of our guests, Jeff Danker, these guys are analyzers. They are passionate about what they do, and that's the reason they're killing big deer. They're killing deer. And, Greg, uh, if you want to hear more about Greg Miller, we've got a bonus segment here that we do on the podcast. You cannot listen to it on regular radio. So after we wrap the show, you got to sign up on the podcast, become a member of the podcast, to catch the bonus segment, which is going to be decoin with Greg Miller.
3: Greg, thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, my pleasure. It's a good bunch of guys. We're all fellow deer hunters, that's why.
1: That's right. That's exactly why. Deer hunters are
3: good people. (laughs) Yes, we are, and we all
2: help one another. And remember, we're all into hunting for the same goal because we enjoy it, number one. We're enjoying God's creation. Number two, it was handed down to us by a very high percentage of most hunters buy your American roots, your ancestors. So Greg Miller is here and doing what he's doing today because his family all pitching in that hundred bucks to buy that hunting shack in the big woods. Wayne, you, you want to say know? something?
0: Oh, well, I was just going to say, we're going to wrap it up here and get ready for the podcast. And I press everybody to please subscribe to our podcast to hear the rest of Greg Miller's thing. Uh, you're listening to American Roots Outdoors with Alex Rutledge.
1: I remember when your roots run deep and strong, you never have to fear the wind.
0: So you never got to worry what the wind might
1: do. American roots. Thank you for joining us for today's American Roots Outdoors Radio with Alex Rutledge. You can find us on Facebook. Look us up on the World Wide Web at AmericanRootsOutdoor.com. We'll be back again next week on this great radio station.
2: Back to America, reach outdoor the bonus segment here on the podcast show. Uh, my producer is on the line, Redbone Mike Kreis, and also the brand manager Wayne Locke. And this is the featured bonus segment. We got the famous, and I, he don't like to be called famous or anything like that. But Greg Miller, and you mm-hmm. had to become a member of the podcast to listen to this part of the show. It's going to last about eleven, twelve minutes. And that being said, Greg. The whole purpose of this thing is to educate people, inspire people. I just want to say you're you're one of the people I chose to be on this podcast because you helped lay a lot of groundwork to create what has been created in the outdoor industry. The industry has changed so much, and people's changed so much. There was a day and time uh, of the glory days, as you had said during our conversation. Everybody got along, and we all hunted and done the same thing. We would help each other. The industry's changed, and we're not trying to be negative. We're just trying to be real. And here we are now. You're still hunting. You're 67 years old. And it all started with your family spending $100 each to buy a hunting shack in the big woods. So that being said, let's talk about decoy decoying watch, and I'm not mean setting up a decoy as a conservation agent and writing somebody a ticket for job by, <laughs> doing a job by shooting. I'm talking about pulling deer's eyes, and their nose or ears, and closing the deal with a crossbow or bow or rifle.
3: Let's talk about that. What's the secrets of decoying, Greg? Putting it where a deer can see it. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that sounds too simple. Well, you know, and the thing is, it's, it's got to be in an area, and I, I seldom, well, I've killed two velvet bucks over decoys. I was going to say it's it's kind of a timely strategy, but I've killed two early-season bucks that I would have not have shot. Bone Arrow had I not had this decoy out. They didn't come over to challenge it. They came over to check out who the new guy was. Hmm. During the rut, the pre rut, they're coming over to thump it. I just killed a deer a week ago in South Dakota, western South Dakota. I was actually rattling at a different big buck that was walking through the creek bottom about 100 yards away, and he didn't hear it. It was blowing 30 miles an hour, and I turned to look back towards our decoy, and there's a different big buck charging in from another direction. And uh, thankfully, Jake got him got him on camera and comes walking up and rubs up against the decoy, sniffs it, jumps back, and turns and crashes into it. It's in 20 different pieces.
1: <laughs> but he
3: uh, he made the mistake of just jumping a little ways and turning to look back at it and uh, you got to ride in the back of my truck.
1: <laughs> right, that's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome.
3: That, this, this spot was one of those places where deer are known to cross in this spot across some open ground. Uh, this Buster Creek bottom meanders around like a snake. So you've got a lot of little points. You know, how deer like to walk from point to point. Mm-hmm. But we had it up where... Deer could see this thing from many different directions. And, you know, at the beginning, as I said, you got to put it in a place where deer can see it, and that sounds too simplistic. But you also don't want to have the surprise element where they bust out of through thick cover and it's standing right there in front of I've seen them spook and run off when they do that. So.
0: Almost sounds um, like turkey hunting. The timing,
3: yeah, the timing, without a doubt, the mid to late pre and on through the rut are the best times of year to use a decoy. Alex, I know you know that. Um I'm a little leery of using them in the woods because of this reason I cited earlier, where especially running bucks that are just kind of they're kind of absorbed in something else, and they're walking through the woods, they're not really painted, and they just kind of bust out on this decoy, and it kind of surprises and scares them a little bit. But um,
1: hmm.
3: so you know, when I tell people don't put it up at a range, this is important too. Don't put it at a range from your stand that you may be able to hit a deer at that range or make a killing shot, or you may not. And put it 15, 20 yards from your stand tree because if a buck doesn't come into it, like the one I just killed in South Dakota, they're so absorbing that decoy, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. So it'll give you a good shot at that deer.
0: So you want to kind of put it at uh, uh, a hang-up distance where that buck may hang up and you want that to be your maximum distance, what you're saying?
3: Exactly, yeah. Okay. And, and here's another thing. You know, decoy positioning is, is they want to circle to the head end almost always. They want to have a visual confrontation with this other deer before they decide what to do. Now, there's deer in South Dakota with the exception. I've never in all the years been, I've been decoying. I've had one come running and just absolutely flip the decoy like that. Um, usually they'll circle to the head end and posture and then decide if they want to smash this thing. So no. well, I kind of have this thing quartering towards my stand, the decoy facing towards my stand, because when he circles around to the head end, it's going to put him between you and the decoy, and he's going to be looking at the decoy, which means he's looking away from you. Right. So it able draw your bow. And I've done that both ground lines and tree stands. And that works to perfection. Yes. The
2: decoy placement is everything in being able to close the deal, gentlemen. And it's the same way with turkey hunting. When you're using a uh, male decoy, whether it be a jake decoy, strutting decoy, if you're bow hunting or shotgunning or whatever, when you've got that decoy facing you, you can also use that decoy as a marker, uh, knowing exactly how many yards that deal will be. 20 yards is the most usual uh, distance that I set my decoys, Greg, and I believe I learned that from you as well. And I have seen times, Greg, that I've got the decoy partially quartering to me because of the terrain being too steep or whatever to make them come in. And when we set these decoys, and, and then Greg, you again taught me this, you want some kind of barrier behind you with the wind blowing from the decoy to you but well, the deer's got to come between you and that barrier. We cannot get around you. And get around. That's
3: correct. Well, like I said, that's, I mentioned that I, I I seldom have my decoy facing directly at my stand. It's quartering one way or the other. I mean, slightly quartering to me one way or the other. Because, you, you know, I can get in the country and go, I think the deer are going to show up from this spot over here. So I'll have my decoy, you know, positioned accordingly to that. That's Beautiful. Let me ask you this now.
2: You, you're a huge advocate and believer in sin Back in the day, you, uh, Stan Potts, Eddie Salter, Matt Moret, uh, a bunch of us done the away sin away videos at Bass Pro. You could touch a, a planet, a, a, whatever you call it, media gram Bass Pro, and you could see us talk about using sin products. Uh, it's amazing where technologies went of using silamination products. Uh, there's stuff out there that creates a mist that neutralizes the air now between you and the animal. We're not mentioning those names. There's now all kinds of simulation sprays out there. And you was a big advocate of using Sinaway, washing your hair, your body, your decoy, your boots, everything. And how important is it to be scent-free?
3: Well, you, it's, it's everything. You can fool a deer's eyes, I and mean, we just talked about being able to do that with decoys. You can fool a deer's ears, gut calls, and rattling antlers. You can fool his nose. A lamb is a man, and a man means trouble. You know, so it's it's probably the biggest part of the equation. But all the I mean, we, we have certain stands that we know we can hunt with certain winds. We're not going to go in there and tie it if we've got a compromising wind. So it's, it's the most important. I mean, not that you want to be jumping around on your because then they're going to see you. You don't want to be making any unnecessary unnatural noises because then they're going to hear you. But without bail, I mean, that doesn't matter when they, when they sniff it and they know it. Especially you they're talking about four- and five-year-old whitetail bucks. They're just not. They're gone. They're done. Game Game over. So it is is the most important aspect
2: of it, I think. You know, when we set these decoys up, and again, learning a lot of this from you and other uh, people like Larry Wiseau and and Stan, uh, it's important to create these scent uh, posts uh, or lay down uh, something that will register with these deer. It's like trapping. If they smell buck urine, and deer identify each other. Who sent one the other way? Then they smell doe and heat. Basically, a light comes on their head. Oh, there's another new buck here. Then there's a doe and heat. And if this deer's aggressive, and he's got dominance about him, he's going to seek it out. And it helps turn on the green light to make that deer even come closer. That's why another reason why it's so crucial to use scents and lures, because you're actually painting a picture that's imprinted. Into their mind, which makes that green light come on. Oh, I'm gonna go and come on in. I okay,
1: guys, we just got a couple of minutes here left, and Alex and and Greg, I want to ask this question. And, and I know you know, talk, you're talking about using butt decoys. Do you ever use a doe decoy and use you know like a, an estrus urine with that doe decoy? I
3: I've, I've used it as a doe um, in early season. Very very seldom if I use it without the antlers on it, but just to get. We were in a situation out in Wyoming or Montana years ago where um, these deer were coming out of a small river bottom some distance away, and the first thing they'd do is they'd come out and they'd look towards this huge 80-acre irrigated alfalfa field where we were set up in a ground line, decide which part of the field they were going to come into. And the first thing they do is look to see where the other deer were that were already out in that field feeding. Mm-hmm. And then they'd just use them as their landmark, and here they'd come across this wow. third of a mile open prairie. So I'm looking at a moaned head here in my house from Montana Whitetail hundred and seventy inch deer I killed the first week of September over a decoy. And the reason I killed him is we'd watched him a couple evenings prior and we watched what these deer were doing and I popped up a decoy and him and three of his uh three of his buddies walked right up to that decoy
1: hmm.
3: over half hour before dark. And they came from some of the most incredible footage we've ever laid down, they came out of a small river bottom boat a good third of a mile away and walked across open Prairie, that yellow grass, and my cameraman burned them. It was beautiful in that soft light. But they keyed on that decoy. And the moment they came out of that river bottom, till they got to it, they were locked on it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there that's... you go.
2: There you have it. No decoys will work, and do you like to use... Antlers more than any other. we just got a few seconds left here. I want to say thank you so much, Greg Miller, for being on this show. You are truly one of the mentors and one of the guys that's laid the groundwork to get whitetail bow hunting, decoying, uh, mock scraping, reading the sign. Where's that today? You paid your dues. Thank uh, you, You didn't buy your way in this industry. You earned it. Uh, you didn't. You got there because of you your knowledge. And thank you for being a part of the American Roots Outdoors podcast show and uh, Wayne, give you a chance, Mike, to say something real quick.
0: Yeah, I was going to tell all subs- the uh, subscribers to the show here uh, that there's a uh, just a handful of books that I would recommend uh, that are must reads if you are a uh, an archer and and of course we have Fred Bear's Archer's Bible, Howard Hill's Method of Shooting, and without a doubt, Greg Miller's Rubline Secrets has changed the way I hunted. When I read it in about, I think it was like 2000, 2001, but it is a must-read book. Uh, your articles in that are, without a doubt, um, knowledgeable and will change how you hunt. Well, thank Red you. That you're very
1: kind. Yeah, all I got Red to bone. say is we are, are out of time, and it's been a pleasure hearing you talk, uh, Greg, about uh, a number of different to- uh, topics, and I think things that people will learn from today. And, Greg, well, I want to ask you, you yeah, ask you, too, before we get off of here on the uh, podcast, where can listeners find you and get more information?
3: Well, they can check me out on Facebook and on Instagram. Instagram, it's Mill 70 um, And just check out my personal Facebook page. Send me a friend request. That's about it for, you know, for what I'm doing on social.
1: All right. Very good. Alex? There you have
3: it, everybody. Greg Miller, one of my mentors that
2: taught me how to decoy and how to connect the dots and read signs put it together. He's taught millions, thousands of people how to close the deal on Big Deer. Greg, again, thank you. Continue to watch Greg on North American White Town and some of my other buddies. And remember everybody, Greg will even say it, when your roots are deep and strong, there's no reason to fear the wind. Tell your friends about our podcast. Tell your friends about Greg Miller. Have a great and safe week. What the wind. Game.